0: You know, I always had like, a salad on the side or, you know, a roast potato or a roast squash or whatever, but I never thought of them as, like, the center of the plate. I always thought of them as, like, oh, it's just something we have to have when we throw it on. And I think once I started writing this book, vegetables became, like, so important to the plate and to creating something delicious.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel.
2: Today on the show, Matt is catching up with Jenny Rosenstrock, a cookbook writer and the voice behind the long-running food blog and podcast, Dinner, a Love Story. Matt, what did you and Jenny talk about?
1: For Jenny Rosenstrock, dinner is a gift that she has given each and every night and something that she has celebrated for years via her food writing under the banner, Dinner, a Love Story. In this really fun conversation, we talk about her work as a cookbook reviewer. We also talk about our recent New York Times bestselling cookbook, The Weekday Vegetarians, and what it means to go plant-based for only part of the week. It was a really fun conversation and great getting to know Jenny a little bit better.
2: Here's Matt talking with Jenny.
1: Jane Rosenstrock, welcome to the Taste Podcast.
0: It's so good to be here.
1: I've wanted to get you on the podcast ever since we talked um, in the fall. We did a print story for our Monday interview, and I got to know you a bit through that. But wanted to get a little bit more into um, your book, Weekday Vegetarians, is New York Times bestseller, and, and really one of my favorite books of the year. Uh, I thought the design and the way the recipes came together was, was so creative and clever but first, I just wanted to get a sense of Dinner A Love Story just for our, our listeners. You launched this a while ago. What What is Dinner A Love Story?
0: Well, it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's um, it's a website devoted to family dinner and the way that I use food to take care of people. Um, it's expanded and evolved over the course of the 12 years that I've been writing it. But it comes down to how can we make dinner for the people we love or for ourselves, um, in a way that, you know, we don't lose our minds making it happen. And also in a way that makes our lives a little bit better every time we do it. Um, you know, I think it's, I think of dinner still after all these years of cooking for two kids. And, um, Mm -hmm. I still think of it as a kind of a gift that I give to myself every day. And I just try to help people see it that way too.
1: I love the way you put it at dinner as love language. Has has dinner, has the actual love language, the, the dishes uh, changed over the course of running Dinner Love Story? Is there any kind of change? And maybe I'm tipping to the Weekday Vegetarians project in the book, but has have you seen a shift?
0: In- oh my God, absolutely. I mean, the first book I wrote, Dinner Love Story, was already a chronicle of the way my cooking evolved, even in just like a 10-year period, because just like the way we cook, just changes so much based on our mm-hmm. life stages like before, when when I first got married I was like teaching myself how to cook and that's what the first section is about and then when we had babies it was like anything that was edible was dinner and that was a different way to cook and then you know and then like the last section was <coughs> sort of like I called it something like when the angels began to sing which is when like we actually started cooking meals that were like recognizable as like a proper sit down <laughs> dinner. Um, and not, you know, like, you know, food all over the floor and ground
1: into your floor, into your, into your rug. Yeah.
0: But then that's just the, you know, the, the way I cook, but also the food that we've prepared over the course of the years, you know, it's just like anyone else, like the food I'm in the food world. So I, I, I am as susceptible to the trends as anyone else. So, you know, I was like all about the kale salad and the, in the mm-hmm. and. Um, and then like Adolenghi took over my life and like, you know, when Plenty came out and, um, yeah, I mean, but now just, just to lead into the weekday vegetarians, that's, that book really marks a shift in the way that, Mm -hmm. um, in the, in the ingredients that we've been using, um, obviously way more plant-based. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we just felt like, you know, I, I mean, just the reason why I wrote the book was, um, you know, it was multi-pronged, but one of the main reasons was, it was right after the twenty sixteen election, and I kind of felt like almost irresponsible, just pushing all these re- these recipes um, that were meat based. I was in a position where I was reaching people who were cooking, and I just felt like you know all the the climate change and that conversation was getting really loud and also ignored during that period. And I felt yeah. like what can we what can we do? What can I do to help? You know, I knew I had read that taking meat out of your your everyday or reducing meat would, um, is like the single most important thing we can do to combat climate change. And so that just sort of, you know, and I had two teenage girls at the time. I mean, I still do, but they, um, but they were reading about this stuff and they're of that generation that's like, mom, why are we having meat every night? And so they pushed me in a way that, that I, I was, it was kind of this long conversation and then it happened overnight. You know, we just kind of decided
1: You just started the rules, and you write about them in the introduction or or the night that you decided that you were going to present this idea. But I want to step back before we get into the the guts of the book. But like was during this journey from Dinner Love Story into current time, is there a cuisine, like a a style or just a cuisine that has really risen – in your family, as like something you cook often, like is there you cook like Japanese style often or anything like that, or don't out examples? I do
0: love Japanese cooking. Um, I love I love just the flavors. Like, yeah. just I'm generalizing here, but of Asian cuisine, like I just love that like salty soy umami. And my kids do too, which makes it easy. Um, so, so yeah, that I wouldn't say that defines my cooking, but I mean, what defines my cooking is just. Um, you know, just food that's, that tastes good. (laughs) That's, that's, I I mean, and I'm always, you know, I, I write about cookbooks a lot. So a lot of the time it's like kind of a, um, a big mishmash of like what I'm reading about and what's, what other people are talking about. And it's like the dinner table for us, like in addition to just being a place where we could all, you know, gather around at the end of the day, it was also like my, my, my office, like, and it was like a little, um, it was like a little lab. So I would be constantly experimenting with, you know, whatever recipes were coming across my desk, whether it was on Instagram or whether it was through this latest, you know, Adolinghi book that came across my desk or, um, so yeah, it was just always kind of like, I just always kind of wanted to, um, you know, see what else was out there and try it out on the kids.
1: Sure. And you're, you've reviewed uh, cookbooks uh, for many publications and we can talk about that but let's talk about the ground rules of weekday vegetarians and how does meat enter the picture is it um is it a vegetarian cookbook and only meat on the weekends as it title suggests or is there is it a little more flexible
0: i think we need a lot more people eating less meat versus fewer people eating no meat because i feel like it's an easier way to sell it and The reason why we've been able to stick with it as long as we have not just stick with it, but really like it's become a bona fide lifestyle for us to just kind of default to plant based cooking. But the reason is because we always, you know, just like everything, it's like moderation. We have this out, Um, you know, the way the book is was conceptualized and the way we started was five days a week. We would have plant based food Monday through Friday um, Mm -hmm. vegetarian dinners. Um, and then on the weekends we would let ourselves, you know, have our splurges and we would like hit shake Shack, or we would, you know, yeah. just, um, have Pansy or pork chop or all of our favorites that our kids had, you know, were like synonymous with our kids childhoods mm-hmm. and our childhoods, frankly, too. Like we found that was a hard thing. Like we had all these nostalgic attachments to recipes. I mean, then they were all yeah. meat based, like not all of them, but most of them were, and they weren't nostalgic because of the meat, but they were just nostalgic because that's the way we cooked. And so,
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: but that's how we started. Now, you know, it's not like I will not have chicken on a Tuesday. Like that, of course, I will. But like for the, I yeah. would say, you know, eighty percent of the time, um, I'm eating. It's going to be a plant based meal.
1: I think our listeners are going to be wondering when you started this journey of weekday vegetarian. Did you did you feel better? Did, was there? A, a, did it change the way you spent? I mean, I think that's the those are the practical questions. I think our listeners are interested in. I know it's talking about these things is not easy because you know you might have been feeling great before so i don't want to like assume you were feeling bad i don't want to like put you into that box but you know
0: i mean I, I get that question a lot and it's it's um it's a tricky question but because all food is good food um yeah, but yeah. but i do feel like what this book has done has really gotten me to think about vegetables like not just like not eating meat but like really being vegetable forward about things which yeah. i i you know, I always had like a salad on the side or, a you know, like a roast potato or a roast squash or whatever. But I never thought of them as like the center of the plate. I always thought of them as like, oh, it's just something we have to have and we throw it on. And and I think once I started writing this book, um, vegetables became like so important to the plate and to creating something delicious that I would kind of start there. And then when you have, you know, and so like half the plate is vegetables now versus, um, you know, like a third or whatever. And... And that just automatically, like, makes you feel good. Like, you feel, I just feel, because that was half the plate, like, the rest of the stuff was being squeezed, the rest of the portions were being squeezed, so I didn't yeah. eat as much as the rest. And so, yes, like, like, I felt better after dinner most of the time. Um, You know, not every night, but as a matter of course, like, I just like the way I feel. Yeah. Um, and I have more energy, like, when I eat like that during the day, too. So, um, so absolutely. But, um, but cost, at, for sure, like, I still can't believe my my like how much my Trader Joe's bill or my you know mm-hmm. just regular old stop and shop bill changes like i just didn't realize when you're eating meat five times a week that really adds up
1: it does you look at your grocery store bill at uh, the receipt at the end and and you look at meat and meat prices have gone up rightly so i think people are you you should spend money for meat it's kind of important to to be responsible and and just pay for good meat you know
0: now yeah, yeah, we yeah. can spend money on high quality meat and um you know and we can feel okay about it it doesn't feel like it's gonna crush us
1: i'm gonna give you two vegetables and i just want to get a sense of how you would put a meal around these this is like real quick fire style no um one is one is let's just do napa cabbage or savoy we'll do either cabbage so in cabbage how would you cook that as a centerpiece meal use that vegetable
0: I love cabbage and and it's a new love story for me. It was not the mm. case um, before quarantine. I really discovered it and fell in love. I mean, I always like, I, I always went immediately to the slaw place when I had cabbage, mm. but like I discovered roasting and cooking and cooking down cabbage during the pandemic. And um, so this is what, um, this is what I just made two days ago. Like a, I caramelized onion, like just two little basic supermarket yellow onions. Um, and then I uh, cook those down so they're nice and sweet. You don't even need a ton of oil, but then like salt, pepper. And then I throw in half of a nap cabbage, shredded, like just chopped. And then that cooks down and it's just like roast. And you just, and you can put it on high heat and it gets like nice and roasty and brown. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then, I put all of that I can I put I wrap that all up in like a pie crust with like a little mustard underneath and you can put a little apple cider vinegar in the onions um I find the mustard does kind of the same thing it just cuts that yeah. sweetness if you like the sweetness um and then you roast it and then, I mean you bake it and it's like this perfect little cabbage onion tart um but yeah in the book I have a recipe for braised cabbage um yeah. it's like a cider braised cabbage where you just like have a savoy or a green cabbage and you brown it just like you would be browning you know like a, a chicken thigh and then you remove it and you pour I pour I like make um, I fry some shallots and um uh, like tomato paste I add in there and I
1: love this I love the way that the flavors are coming together and this does feel like a main dish like braising cabbage can be main
0: totally and it's like it just takes on this like flavor that I just didn't know. I mean, this is what I mean. Like, I feel like I learn things every day, but like, I can't believe how much, I mean, it's because I was writing this book where I was really forcing myself to see those kinds of like, just very humble vegetables as things that could be the starring player. And it worked.
1: Let's do green beans, green beans, fresh green beans, frozen. What's a center, uh, like a main using green beans?
0: My yeah. bar is very low with green beans. So, like, what I'll do is I'll just, like, throw that. Like, usually I get the Trader Joe's. Like, they have beautiful, like, frozen sweet French-style green beans, they're called. They're basically, like, skinny, airy cooker. But they're all trimmed, and you just shove them into the, the skillet. Um, I, I will say that, like, recently I have discovered having a little um, compound butter of, like, a miso chive compound butter, mm-hmm. which sounds fancy, but it takes two seconds to make as long as your butter is room temperature. And I just kind of keep a stash of that in the fridge. And when I just have those beans and I toss them with that butter, it's like, it's so special. And with an egg on top, I mean, that's a light dinner. I don't know if like a mom listening to this, like who's feeding, like, you know, her football player yeah. son is going to like, see that mm-hmm. as a dinner, but for lunch, certainly.
1: It sounds delicious. So you're using light miso or dark miso plus butter, plus anything else in this compound butter?
0: A little bit of sea salt, but I don't even know if you need yeah. it with the miso. Um, but yeah, yeah, I use it on almost, I mean, every roast vegetable. And it's actually, I had a recipe for like a, um, a sweet potato in my book that used a miso butter, but it was just like miso mixed with butter, not the scallions. And when I um, I interviewed Kay Chun, who's a recipe developer for the New York Times recently. And um, it was just all about how to upgrade your vegetables in easy ways. And she was the one who was like mash. She, We were talking about the compound butter. And she said, put ginger in there, put, um, put garlic in there, put scallions in there, put everything that's like, and then just use it as like, just dollop it on your roasted vegetables. And I yeah. did that with um, like roast eggplant, with roast squash, anything roasted. Um, if you just like you roast them with a tiny bit of olive oil and you take them out and then you stir the butter in at the when you're serving. And so she just kind of took it to the next level for me.
1: It sounds amazing. Do you get the question about a protein? Like if I'm eating plant-based during the week and, you know, we have this perception that we need protein all the time, so much protein, protein, protein. uh, How do you negotiate that?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think about a lot and there's a whole section in the book dedicated to the protein add-on because I do kind of find it's like we've reversed our thinking here with like, it used to be, okay, I have chicken. So what, like, you know what I was saying before, what salad do I throw on the side at the last Mm -hmm. second? And I kind of feel like that's how I've relegated the protein, which is like, you know, it's good and bad, but like, I'll like have those green beans for instance. And so there's like, I'll just throw the seven minute egg on top and that's the protein. Um, There's crispy chickpeas are like have basically replaced like the basic chicken breast, um, in our house. Like we just throw that into salads and into grain bowls and, um, everyone loves them. And
1: it's a superpower to have a good roasted chickpea recipe or fried chickpea recipe. It really is
0: kitchen superpower luckily my both of my daughters just kind of tried them when we were first like playing around with them and loved them immediately and so it was actually my daughter Abby's idea to throw them into like our chicken caesar salad instead of the chicken yeah and it's her number one most requested meal now so
1: do you use oil how do you get them crispy what's your what's your
0: trick um the trick is to well to start with them as dry as possible um and then i mean i i roast them sometimes and then i like just put them in the skillet and yeah. you know 3 tablespoons a little bit more of olive oil maybe a little
1: bit more <laughs> a little bit more the
0: trick is when you're frying them in the oil is to um just not touch them for a while like you you want to stir them all the time but like it's yeah. very you just let them sit a little bit longer than you think cuz you can't over crisp them
1: you can't they're very foolproof with that on the on the topic of protein i just wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh the this fake meat Um, world we live in these days and you know beyond and impossible are the major brands but there there really are everywhere you know there's there's many sides to this this argument i wonder if you have a side and if you've thought through what the way that you want to you know move forward as a recipe developer and a and a a leader in food do you want to cook with them do you not do you have an opinion
0: i mean like everyone i was fascinated by by all of the like you know, beyond and impossible. And there, there are so many of them now. And and I felt like the it was like one of those things that I had to try when it happened. I was really into them. I was in fact writing a story for Cup of Joe, you know, where I write a food column for. Um, I was writing a, like a taste test about it um, right before the pandemic hit. And so I had purchased like 12 different kinds of <laughs> meat. And then, of course, it was all canceled because it was like scheduled for like March 13th, 2020. Oh, and so, yeah. we get like the person who was doing the tasting. With, so, I ended up with all of these, um, this frozen, you know, quote, meat in my freezer. And so, we cooked with it through like for the first like couple months. We didn't cook through all of it because by the f- like fourth or fifth one, I was like, I can't eat this anymore. Like,
1: you're living through a pandemic and you're using these products, man. You're putting yourself through
0: it. I would no. say, Impossible was by far my favorite. Um, But it just kind of got to the point where I was like, I could, like, I like them as burgers. And I kind of felt like, since I was also writing the book at the time, I was like, I should just come up with my own veggie burger. Like, I don't need to do this. And and I did. It was like the inspiration for the veggie burger that's Mm. in the book. And the veggie burger is. I, I don't. I, I kind of still don't know how I landed on it because, like, veggie burgers, are I've never really had a good one.
1: They're so hard to develop the recipes. We've tried at taste.
0: But the other thing, annoying thing about veggie burgers, it's like feels like a very like witch's brew thing. Like you're throwing yeah. in like rice and oats and mushrooms, yeah. and it takes like a it's a million ingredients. And um, but it takes like you know like an hour to on the weekend, not even a, not, like an hour. And then. um And then you freeze them into patty. You you put them into patties like in between parchment paper, and then you freeze them. So my recipe makes ten patties. So we just use them. We just pull them out for like last minute dinners. Then they become ten minute dinners. But but it's a really good recipe. They actually they're like Uh, the trick is to like flatten them and to get like the edges craggy, so it tastes like burger.
1: Like a smash burger kind of, it sounds like you're going smash burger style. I love that. Um, let's talk about your cup of joe column because I, I love that column and I love that you're writing for this very wide audience. And what do people most want to know?
0: I mean, they want to know the same thing that like <laughs> everyone wants to know, <laughs> which is what I was which is the only way I know how to write, which is like how can we cook better and how do we make food a part of our lives in a way that yeah. like, we enjoy versus like we stress about. And I mean, they they're such an amazing Audience because they're her readers are so unbelievably engaged. And I learn I almost feel like sometimes that I don't even have to be there. Like I just like write something as an excuse for them to talk because like the comment section is so robust and mm-hmm. um and I learn so much from her readers. Um and it's it's really fun. Um and and Joanna Goddard, who's the one who who is Cup of Joe, who, the
1: Joe, yeah.
0: Her whole mission is to she wants people to you know always feel included, never, um, never feel bad about themselves when they leave. And she really, I don't know how she does it. She manages like, this is like the most civilized community on the internet. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you really feel it in those comments. And so I just, I really, I love, um, I love writing for her.
1: We'll link to that as well. Um, I feel like you're you're a recipe developer and you've got a family and you're cooking a lot, but you're also out at restaurants and you're traveling when you can travel and you've got, you know, great taste in, in everything, just reading your writing. And how do you find inspiration for these books? Do you, do you have a favorite place to go, a place to travel or coming to the city or is it just from your reading the cookbooks that you review?
0: I mean, it's from all of those things. I think it's like, it's kind of a big mystery, you know, like when people are like, how do you come up with your ideas? Like, you know, it's just like, you're just naturally gravitate towards certain things. So you just like, don't even know where this stuff like resides in your brain. But like, I will say that all of my books and all the writing I do, just the inspiration comes from just like, this sounds super lame, but like just living (laughs) my life. I have no idea what recipes I'm running on my newsletter next week that's because and I I kind of like to think this might be wishful thinking but I'd like to think that's why I can I've I've been able to do it all these years and and why people are still reading because like I don't want anything to feel overly produced or slick or I want it to feel like I just I talk about this all the time but like I I hate recipes that are just recipes like out of context like I love hearing how a recipe fits into your life like just cup of joe we were talking about before like there was a recipe for a um one of the, like, it just went bananas, like, with traffic. It was um, Alexandra Stafford, who writes Alexandra Cooks. She's this master bread maker. And she, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's the kind of recipe that, like, most people... I I, I hear bread and yeast. I'm like, that's too much for me. It's a project. And we just... But I was like, this bread, you can... Like, she had a recipe for a loaf, like, a peasant loaf bread, which you could, like, decide at 3.30 in the afternoon to make. And then you could have a fresh loaf for dinner. And just saying that sentence, like, I think puts it into context and it's like it just makes you feel like you can do it. And it's not just like some yeah. it's it's just not some like, you know, um recipe extricated from like some other world.
1: It's just not hollow it's not a hollow promise. It's a real promise. And I think when you're writing in that newsletter form you want a real execution. It's not a long-form piece. It's a one recipe-to-recipe recipe newsletter, and I think Alexander's recipes are great. They do. They follow a promise. Mark Bittman has a promise. You have a promise, yeah.
0: And I, I mean, also, just like what we were talking about before the way my family has evolved. Like it's just, I'm so lucky that I named this whole thing dinner love story because that kind of applies to every stage in my life. And, and I feel like like just last summer, one of my daughters was having like this skin issue and we didn't went to dermatologist after dermatologist. We can figure it out. And finally we just decided to go like the diet route and try to eliminate gluten and dairy. And so like for like three months I was cooking without dairy Mm -hmm. and gluten and um, I never, like, wrote about this on the blog, so people must have been like, why is she suddenly <laughs> yeah. giving us options for dairy-freeism? But, like, it's just, you know, and I learned so much from that period, like, of just, like, what people are looking for and mm-hmm. and just, and, and so, like, things like that are happening all the time, obviously. And so I just, that's how I get inspired, just by, like, what problem am I solving for my family. Hopefully this will resonate with some other family. Yeah. And so, um, you know, like our kids are in college now, like the dinner table looks completely different. So that's what I write about now. And it's like, do they
1: come home for dinner?
0: They're, they're both in college. One of them is in Vermont. One of them's in Minnesota. And so they don't come home as often as I would like, but when they do, they have very specific quests, you know, for uh, uh, you know, someone on my when I was getting all like sad sacky about like my kids are leaving me, you know, someone on my <laughs> blog said, "Oh, well, you don't know the joy of the coming home dinner yet. Wait till you see that." And oh. I was like, "Oh my god, that's right. It's like not a book that ends. There's like chapter after chapter and like so now there's like the coming home dinners and
1: coming home from college is a is a moment, you know, you remember forever. I feel like you and knew, you knew it's it's some of it's sappy Hallmark style, but some of it's just like the practical like walking in the door and having like some kind of you know smell right do you have a, a book project in the works do you want to talk about you know you're a your times bestseller for this one and, and i'm sure you've got you know irons in the fire
0: I, yeah i mean i'm working on it now um, i'm working on a proposal for my next one but i don't i'm not entirely sure what it is you know i feel yeah. like um what i was saying before about like well so where am i in this phase um you know a lot of me wants to do like the weekday vegetarians part two just because mm-hmm. the, Um, When I shipped, when I, when that book went to the printer, like in the next week, there were like 10 things that I was like, oh, I wish I put this in the book. And so I feel like I'm just kind of getting started on exploring plant-based eating, like really focused on vegetables first. And I just like the idea of vegetables being the star of the whole cookbook is so appealing to me. Um, And like the first book, like I'm not entirely sure I can do it like right now. And it's like, feels like a very big challenge to me, but that's Mm -hmm. part of the appeal, I guess. But also like, I do feel like just what we were talking about, just the different phases that we're moving in and out of, like, I do feel like I'm moving into this phase where I'm using cooking. Um, It's still a love story, you know, but in a different Mm -hmm. way, like with just taking care of, you know, our, our community and our friends, you know, last fall was kind of a rough fall for my Mm -hmm. family because my father-in-law died and my Mm -hmm. father had, was in like a terrible accident and he's doing fine now. But like a lot of it was taking care of, you know, like not just the person who's sick, but just like my mother-in-law who suddenly was eating by herself. Like we would be, you know, like how to make her, how to give her like a little bit of love, like Mm -hmm. food and, um, you know, like just, Given when my dad was ready to eat, like bringing him matzo ball soup at the hospital. And just like there's so many more ways to write about dinner, like in that context, in that. And, and it's it's you know, it's like not as fun as writing for kids. And but it's like it's it, it does feel like the more I write about those topics, the more people yeah. are saying thank you for this. I, I you know, I, I, like it, it makes me feel so much better that you're going through this too. And mm-hmm. so like, you know, in a perfect, I, I don't know, the answer to your question is I would love to have a book that kind of addresses that phase of life.
1: I'm excited to follow. You review cookbooks and you've written um, large cookbook roundups for the New York Times and and for other publications. I, I like to know uh, the spring is here and we're looking into summer and fall. Where, what, what cookbooks are you enjoying? Is there any books in particular?
0: Well, I mean, there are a couple that are not, out yet that I'm like I'm very much looking forward to the Eric Kim book. Um sorry to admit this to you. Of all people, I don't know a lot about Korean cooking. Um and I just think he's um I, I've been reading The Galley. Um, I got an advanced copy of it, and um he's just a beautiful writer. And just speaking of what we were talking about before with returning home, like he has this whole section about returning home and it's a love letter to his mother, and I'm just like such a sucker for that kind of stuff. So <laughs> he's um, and his recipes are amazing. So, um, Allie Slagle's cookbook, I've never met her. I don't know her, but, um, she's just like one of those recipe developers for the New York times who I, or I guess she writes for a lot of publications mm-hmm. now, but, um, like I can always kind of tell, Oh, that's an Ali Slagle recipe because it's like, she just has such fun recipes and like my daughters yeah. like gravitate towards them. Like, you know, the other day my daughter sent me a picture of she was cooking at her at college for like the Super Bowl, she just made like a, the um, was it like a warm goat cheese with like dates and bacon or whatever. It would just like looks so good. And I was like, mm. that's Allie, right? She said, yeah, of course.
1: So we ask all the guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a cookbook or food culture book that you could work on without the burden of time, meaning a deadline or money, meaning a budget. What would that cookbook or food book be?
0: Do you remember that book Heat by Bill Buford 100 years ago?
1: Dario Batali, of course. Yeah, of
0: course. So he, I just feel like that was like during the age of journalism where people were like inserting themselves into yeah. experiences and then writing about them. And, um, but I just loved the way he wrote about learning how to cook. And and I am so, for someone who has written about food for as long as I have, like, you would think I would be confident in my skills mostly, but there's so many voids in my like, you know technical culinary education and i just feel like i would love to just work in a professional awesome kitchen you know like a like a stone barns you know Blue yeah. Hill at stone barns kind of thing and just and work and then write about it
1: well jenny rosenstrock thank you for joining the taste podcast i really appreciate it
0: thank you so much for having me it's always a pleasure <laughs>
1: Anna, we are back with another three things where we shot out three things in food, in food media, in cookbooks, in Oscar-nominated films, perhaps. Anna, what's your first of three things?
2: Okay, one food thing I'm really excited about this week is tuna noodle casserole, believe it or not. <laughs> I've been sort of like feeling a little bit nostalgic for tuna noodle casserole, which is like, you know, I'll admit, sort of a gross sort of outdated dish in today's world. I think about (laughs) it and I think about like the food that my grandparents made. But yeah, I really think that tuna noodle casserole holds up. I've been making like a sort of a little bit of a fancier version of it where I use like actual like slightly al dente pasta instead of the egg noodles that are sort of like famous in a tuna noodle casserole. And I make like a mushroomy bechamel instead of using the canned Campbell soup. And it's really good. I really think it's time to sort of like revisit tuna noodle casserole as a society.
1: Questions, 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 questions. Okay. First question is first, did you cover it in your book? Yes. tin your tin fish book. You've covered it.
2: Yeah, okay. there's definitely going to be a really good recipe for tuna noodle casserole in my book coming out in spring 2023.
1: Shout out plug. Second question. Okay, I can't get over the smell of tuna noodle casserole. This is me speaking, not you. I, I, when you walk into an, a, a kitchen that has tuna, tuna noodle casserole in the oven, it's not food to me. It's 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 transcends food. It's something like industrial. It's something like maybe like there's like a a torture scenario happening (laughs) in my brain. I just think that smell is is just vile to me.
2: I texted my teenage niece yesterday to ask if she had ever had tuna noodle castle because I wasn't sure if maybe this sort of like died out in our generation. And she had actually never even heard of it.
1: Oh, interesting. And then
2: I sort of, I took her through the concept and she said something along the lines of I have to be honest that sounds awful
1: (laughs) I ain't gonna hate I ain't gonna yuck your yum I I I feel like you're the one to make it great last question about tuna casserole would you put Ritz crackers on top
2: I actually okay so I've been really into putting salt and vinegar potato chips on top Hmm. like really crumbled up they just get like really buttery and they add a nice like sharpness to the whole dish but Ritz crackers also an awesome option Love it. What's your first three thing?
1: Okay. Deep breath. We're going to talk about film right now for a second. We're going to talk about the film called Drive My Car, which, Anna, is the best film I've seen in five years. It is incredible. It is three hours long. Have you seen it?
2: I haven't. I've been dying to. It's on my list.
1: It's great. Ryusuke Hamaguchi is the director. It's based on a short story by uh, Haruki Murakami, very famous Japanese author. Um, and I, I got to say, the film is... Restrained it has pacing as an incredible car, but to me the the food in the film speaks to me in many ways. I think that um, outside of uh, being based around uh, drama and the the creation of a play and dramaturge, which is really cool uh, behind the scenes kind of kind of gossip about film about theater, the food is interesting, and to me the first Kind of food scene is actually at a bar, and two of the characters, an older and a younger character, discuss uh, an important plot point at a bar. And they've got these Japanese highballs with hand-carved cubes, and it's so beautifully shot. I just love seeing when when food is shot by like a like a really like an artur. It just makes me excited.
2: Yeah, it's so transportative because you can like sort of taste what the drink tastes like and you it can sort of like feel how cold and icy the drink is
1: exactly i mean and it has like there there's more than the food but then it has just the food plays a role in the in the actual drama and when it just looks really beautiful um like for example later in the film there's a home cooking scene and it's a lot of the film is based in hiroshima and it's um it's a home scene and it feels extremely lived in and real. There's um a meal that's put out and there's a there's a, a Hiroshima style okonomiyaki I believe I peeked in the corner and that's kind of like different than the Osaka version which is much thicker and kind of the version we know. The Hiroshima version is thinner and it's kind of like a, an omelet almost. And I so I spotted that, I spotted bottles of coke and water around the table and just when you when you have a film that that you, is really um has Um, a real point of view from the director. But then when the food is actually not an afterthought, it actually is part of it. But like not overselling the food, I I just, it it really spoke to me. I kind of just wanted to talk about driving my car on the podcast and thank you for indulging me. I
2: can't wait to see it. And maybe cook some okonomiyaki afterwards.
1: Yeah, thank you for saying the word right. I said it kind of (laughs) wrong. Anna, what's your second one?
2: Okay, my second food thing that I'm really excited about this week is, um, so context here, I really don't like the flavor of banana, like banana candy is so gross to me, I hate it. But I actually had two really good banana desserts in the last week. One was a banana ice cream at Bar Blondeau in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg. They serve this really beautiful banana ice cream alongside like a chocolate peanut butter dessert. And it just surprised and delighted me as someone who doesn't love bananas. But this was really good. And the second. Okay, so
1: what don't you like about bananas?
2: It's hard to really articulate what I don't like about bananas, but like, I just don't like those are like the candies and desserts
1: that I don't really
2: gravitate towards. All right. The second really good banana dessert I had this week was a caramelized banana ganache chocolate from. Uh, a chocolatier and bakery called Good Ambler in Chicago. Ooh! And these chocolates are really good. Like I had sort of like in a a box assortment, and I was a little bit scared of the caramelized banana chocolate, but it was so good. <laughs> it like actually had that caramelized banana flavor,
1: like a flambe almost.
2: Yeah, totally. It really, really. Yeah, I feel me.
1: like that's. When you can nail that that caramelization in a, in a in a dessert or in a chocolate, that's really hard to do. It's what's the name of the again? What's the name of the, the chocolatier?
2: It's called Good Ambler.
1: Good Ambler. I'm gonna remember that. Check it Sounds out. Sounds great.
2: Yeah. What's your second thing this week?
1: Well, I was reminded this week when Franz Ferdinand released their their latest album, which is a greatest hits album, and they actually have two women in the band now, which is which is really rad. I, I love Franz Ferdinand. But it got me thinking about the lead frontman, Alex Carpanos, who has this really, really cool food history. He grew up uh, in Scotland uh, cooking and working in restaurants. I know this because I read his Guardian column back in the early 2000s. And the culmination of this column was this really cool little book called Sound Bites that he wrote. It was published in 2006 on Penguin. And to, I still return to it, and I, I love this book because it talks. It, it kind of has a proto bordanian way with it, um, but not in an annoying, tryhard way. Like he's he's extremely, I think, empathetic towards his subjects, from what I remember. Don't quote me, but I believe he he's he's like the rock star traveling the world, eating foods in Argentina and in Tokyo and he walks around Greenpoint in one of his essays in early 2000s Greenpoint which is much different than 2022 Greenpoint but I just have to shout him out because I, I love his music but I think I like his writing even better
2: that's very cool also I mean like it makes sense for a Torian musician to also be really knowledgeable about food because you're traveling all over the world and trying new things like every week so that's really cool
1: and you're taken out by promoters and you're taken out by your record label. And it's always been a, an interesting point of view, like the, the musician, the rock star. And I think, you know, the Japanese Breakfast crossover into, into her memoir is a recent example, uh, Crying in H Mart. Uh, and that book is amazing. And I think, you know, this book is very different. Soundbites is more of a collection of essays. But I feel like it's hard to do. A lot of musicians think they're great writers because they think that they're, you know, they're rock stars. They're very confident. But uh, this one really delivers. It's called Soundbites.
2: Very cool, Anna.
1: What's your What's your next of three things?
2: Okay, so I recently found myself near Kalustians, um in Murray Hill, which actually I think we talked about a few episodes back because I picked up some really awesome Frozen Monty from Calustians. Yeah,
1: that's um, right.
2: I also picked up like another just wild card item purchase while totally hungry and like not thinking straight was a package of this cuttlefish ink orzo, like mm. jet black orzo. Um, and I've been on a little bit of an orzo kick lately. I wrote about it for Taste this week. You we'll link to that in the show notes. But this black orzo was really interesting, and it's been really fun to cook with. I made sort of like a seafood paella with it the other day, and... I really want to just try like cooking some brothy mussels and just like throwing some of this squid ink orzo in and like letting it soak up all that delicious garlicky broth.
1: Anna, that sounds like the most amazing restaurant dish, like squid ink cuttlefish orzo with mussels. That sounds amazing.
2: Yeah. I mean, free idea if any chefs are (laughs)
1: listening to the show. (laughs)
2: You know, put that on your menu. I'll come in. I'll eat it.
1: I feel like we should do a podcast live from Kalustians in the Upstairs Cafe.
2: That would be so much fun. There's so much to talk about in there. Like, I just, you know, you can just get lost in Kalustians for hours.
1: Actually, let's just get one of the Kalustians owners on the show. Let's actually, that's probably more doable.
2: Yeah, let's do it. What's another of your three things?
1: I'm realizing now that my three things are all media, which is strange because I do cook and I enjoy cookbooks, but I, I wanted to shout out um, a brand new cookbook-centric podcast called Everything Cookbooks, which is hosted by a really cool foursome of cookbook authors and collaborators, including Kate Leigh, Andrea Nguyen, Molly Stevens, and Kristen Donnelly. Many, I think Andrea and Kristen have written for Taste. I'm not sure, but it's just a really, really great, collection of seasoned pros in the cookbook publishing world and their first episode just dropped which is called should you write a cookbook which is like a question we're asked a lot and we talk about a lot and this this podcast just there's so much promise here i can't wait to to check it out
2: that sounds very cool sounds like i have some watching and listening cut out for me this weekend and you hopefully have some cooking cut out for you
1: absolutely and i can't wait till we catch up again
2: Taste podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.